0: Good morning, Trinity Church. Good to see you this morning. Hey, thanks for using my name. I appreciate that. It's good to see you this morning. We have much to be thankful for this morning. It's good to see some faces that are unfamiliar. If I don't know you, if you don't know me, please stop and introduce yourself before you leave. Look forward to meeting you. I saw Jared Gilcher come in. Where's Jared at? Where's Jay Gilcher? Jared Gilcher is in the house. Look at Jared Gilcher and his family. Actually, just look at his family. You don't want to look at Jared. (laughs) It's good to have the Gilchers with us today. Praising the Lord for them and their friendship. But most of all, we are thankful to our great God. Hopefully, as we were singing, your heart was being stirred with truths that prepared you to hear his word, to receive his word. Let's pray now, together, I'll pray, and you pray silently in your seat there as we approach God's word. Pray that the Lord would speak through his word to you and thaw your heart this morning, reminding you of who he is and what he's done in his son, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning, undeserving, accomplishing nothing in ourselves that would gain your attention. We are unimpressive. We are convinced of our own greatness in our own minds. And yet we stand sinful, deserving of nothing but judgment. Yet yeah, God, you have been abundant in grace and mercy and goodness you have poured out upon us undeservedly you have poured out upon us your grace and your mercy in your son Jesus it is his name that we exalt this morning it is his name that we lift up it is his name that we sing it is his name that we preach it is his name that we need to hear And we need to trust and find our refuge in his name alone. Not in our towers, not in our buildings, not in our accomplishments, but in his name. The tower, the tower that is his name. I pray for each one of us, Lord of heaven, we pray that you would, by your word, your powerful word by which you created everything you would speak to us. Even this morning, we pray that you would create new life in people that have not accepted your son as their Lord and Savior, that you and your powerful word would create in them new life. For us that that have been saved, for us that you have called to yourself, you would remind us of who we are what you've done and what you are doing and what you are accomplishing and where you are taking everything in the world to exalt the name of your son for your glory. And we embrace that promise, God, that your glory will cover the earth like the waters cover the seas. Everything will bring glory to you. And it is to this end that we must live. It is to this end that we must breathe every breath. I pray that this would be the reality for us. Convict us of sin. Encourage us with the hope that we have. And be exalted in our minds and hearts as we leave today. We pray all of this for your sake and in your name. Amen. This morning we come to Genesis 11, Genesis 11, and the story of the great tower, the great tower of Babel. I'm going to read Genesis 11, 1 through 26, if you would join me in standing for the reading of God's word. This portion of scripture... Concludes the first 11 chapters of Genesis. It concludes our series in Genesis 1 through 11. Serves as a transition, and this is what you'll see at the end of our scripture reading, it serves as a transition to drawing a focus to the line of Shem. The line of Shem which will bring forth Abram, which will be the promised line. So we're transitioning here. Once we are done, and I'm just going to give you the layout, next week we'll celebrate Christmas together, there's a message, a Christmas message that we will join around next week, and then we'll have our New Year's message, and then three weeks from now we'll have our two-year anniversary, two years, Trinity Church has been in existence, two years. That was good, that was good, it's all right. No, it's it's so exciting, two years, I can't believe it. And then we will continue our study in Genesis January 14th. So we're actually going to begin uh, Genesis 12 and look at the life of Abram next semester together. But this passage will conclude Genesis 1 through 11 and draw our attention to the line of Shem. Follow along as I read, starting in verse 1. so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was one hundred years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad five hundred years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived thirty-five years, he would fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah four hundred three years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived thirty years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber four hundred three years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg, and Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu, and Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Reu had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug, and Reu lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sareg had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor, and Sarag lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah, and Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Genesis 1 through 11 focuses on God's dealings with his creation. God has created all things by his spirit and by his powerful word. Genesis 1 through 11 details for us God's dealings with mankind, all the peoples of the earth. We've learned a lot about God in these 11 chapters. God is continuous in his goodness and grace. He, God is continuous in his mercy. Even in judgment, we see God saving people. We also have learned a lot about man, haven't we? Genesis 11, the story of the tower, will be the culmination of what we see about man. And we will see a lot of the same themes here in Genesis 11. Remember, we said last week that Genesis 11 is out of chronological order. Genesis 10 gives us the table of nations. It details for us in a segmented genealogy. It details for us all the people groups that spread over the face of the earth. It gives us the result. And this is on purpose. The author wants to highlight these nations and also separate the nations from The genealogy, the genealogy of the nations from the genealogy of Shem. The nations and their rebellion, which we will see here in chapter 11, the nations will still be brought to blessing. They will still be blessed. How? Even though they're rebellious, they will still be brought to blessing. How? They will be brought to blessing through the line of Shem. We will see that as we look at Abram starting next semester. Abram will be promised several things. He will be promised a land. It's a theme we've seen over and over again. God creates the earth, He creates the land. Abram will be given a land. Abram will be promised a seed. We've seen that theme over and over again. This seed will become a great nation. And God promises Abram that he will bless this nation, the family of Abram, in the land that God has created for them. Land, seed, and blessing. This is what we've seen in Genesis 1-11, through and we will continue to see that even in the life of Abram, in the life of Israel. The Lord tells Abram that through his family, the family that God will give him, Through that family, there will come a blessing to all the families of the earth, a blessing for the nations. I said last week, and it's important to say it again, the point of scripture is not Israel. God's plan has never been that small. God's plan has always been for global doxology his glory over the entire face of the earth. Israel serves as his vehicle to accomplish his plan. You and I are not an afterthought. His church, his people, we are not an afterthought. This has always been the plan for God to make a people in and around the name of his son. And this people... To fill the earth with his glory. That's what we're part of. The promise of blessing for mankind will come through Abram and his family. Here in Genesis 11, we need to stop and focus here on the message of Genesis 11. Here in Genesis 11, we, we see more than just an explanation for how we got all the different languages of the earth. I think sometimes people think that's why Genesis 11. Well, in Genesis 11, we see why we got all the languages or how we all got all the languages. No, again, Genesis 11 is a culmination. Genesis 11 tells us who the peoples are. You want to know what the character and the nature of the nations Really is You want to know what the nature and character of all the people groups of the world truly is? Look to Genesis 11. Genesis 11 tells us who man is, again. And it's important for us to hear it. I'm gonna give you three points this morning, three truths. They're very obvious in the story. This story, by the way, this story, if you ever want to teach someone how to read biblical narrative, this is the story to do it from. This story is beautiful. And it's, it works the way a narrative should work. It's, it's amazing. Uh, if, you're, if you're taking our equipped class, I'm not going to have you raise your hand, lest you be filled with pride. If you're, our equipped, if you're taking our equipped class, you read in the last reading in Grasping God's Word, you read about this passage. And it talked about a chiasm, and it talked about how to read this passage in light of its structure. Anybody remember that? Shamefully, I have to admit, I didn't remember that. And my daughter had to remind me, oh, Dad, that was in our book. I'm like, oh, yeah, sure it was. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Let's look at this story and see what it teaches us. Number one, it teaches us, it shows us that man makes big plans. Man makes big plans. We see that here. The whole earth had one language and the same words and his people migrated from the east. Now you could translate that actually to the east or they were going eastward or that these people were from the east perhaps but the the connection is to this direction, east. That should send off bells if you've been paying attention, Genesis 1 through 11. What happens in the east, remember east of Eden? This is not good. People that are from the east They are up to no good. So that should be a literary point for you. These people from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make brick. Let let us brick bricks, is what it literally says. And burn them burningly. Let's make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and bidding men for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So we see, first of all, that these people had the same language. Everyone understands each other. Everyone's united together around this language and they're migrating together and settling together, which is the direct opposite of what they should be doing. Remember, God told Noah, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. They're not to be joining together and uniting together and staying together. They find a plane in the land of Shinar, and there make some plans together. Their plans are described in two council statements: "Come, let us." They're reminiscent of the statement that God makes back in Genesis 1. Remember what God says in Genesis 1, "Come, let us make man in our image." Now man has his own counsels. Come, let us make man in our image, God says. But man says, let us take counsel together and do something truly great together. They decide to make bricks. Instead of using stone, which the earth provides and they're going to connect the bricks by the ancient version of asphalt bricks and asphalt what are they going to do with these bricks and asphalt by the way you need to know this is cutting edge of technology for their day this was this was what man had they were on the cutting edge of technology what are they going to do they're going to build a city Come, let us build ourselves a city. Now remember, we've seen this theme of city building before, haven't we? Where have we seen city building? In Genesis 1 through 11. Cain. Cain built a city for his own namesake. Who else built a city? Nimrod. Nimrod, whose name means we shall rebel. Nimrod was a builder of cities, a builder of kingdoms. He was the father of what will become Babylon and Assyria. So according to scripture, to this point, is city building good or bad? Not good. So we already know this story is not going in a good direction. These people from the east decide to build a city. But then the text leaves no doubt. Gives us clear indication of what the people were up to. It says, let us build this city with a tower that will reach to the heavens. With its top in the heavens. This is equal to saying, Let us, let us be like God ourselves. Let us achieve heaven in our own strength. Wow, we could preach on that, couldn't we? Let us attain to heaven in our own efforts and strength. Are you here this morning thinking that you're going to reach heaven by your own work? In your own strength? your own power, your own goodness, well then you are in the right place this morning because we want to disabuse you of that notion. Man's role is on earth. Man's place is on earth as God's subjects. And yet they are not content to dwell there. They've forgotten their place. And in case you need more evidence that this building is not good. The text tells us that their motive was to make a name for themselves. Let us build a city with a tower to the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. You want to make a name for yourself this morning? You want people to remember who you are? What a summary of the heart that man has. This This is a summary. This is a picture of all of us. We want our name to be established. (laughs) But what you probably don't see in the text is that the word for name, you know what the word for name is? It's the word Shem. Shem His name means name. God has his plan, which will go through Shem, but mankind wants to make a Shem for themselves. In chapter 12, you'll see that the promises to Abram, you'll see this this word come up again in the promises to Abram when God says that he will make for Abram a great name, a great Shem. He says, I'm going to make a great name for you. So man and his plans to make a name for himself are a direct attack on God's plans. That's that's what's at the center of this entire narrative. God's plans... To bring his glory to all the earth through the name of his son, King Jesus. This plan is opposed by the great plans of man. And you see man's outright rebellion here in the emission of man's fear. What do the people fear? What do they say they fear more than anything here in Genesis chapter 11? What do they not want to happen? Well, they give you the motive again. They say, let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over all the earth. What did God want them to do? He wants them to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And they say, no, 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 no. We don't want to be dispersed over all the earth. They find their security in their plans. They find their security here in their strength So let's summarize man's big plans. Man wants to achieve heaven in his own strength and make his name great on the earth, which entails a complete rebellion towards God's design and purposes. Is that not a wonderful, fitting summary of man right there? Derek Kidner in his commentary says it this way, the primeval history, which is what we've been covering in Genesis 1 through 11, the primeval history reaches its fruitless climax as man, conscious of new abilities, prepares to glorify and fortify himself by collective effort. The elements of the story are timelessly characteristic of the spirit of the world, The project is typically grandiose. Men describe it excitedly to one another as if it were the ultimate achievement. At the same time, they betray their insecurity as they crowd together to preserve their identity and control their fortunes. What a wonderful description of mankind. I did some looking this week on the internet. You ever been on the internet? I don't go on there very often. And my life does not suffer for it. I just got to tell you. I looked at the American Association of Humanism. There is such a thing. The American Association of Humanism, for their definition of humanism, this is one of the definitions it gives. Listen, listen to the definition of humanism. You know what humanism is? Humanism is this belief that man is the center of the universe. Man is the big deal going on. Listen to this definition, humanism is a joyous alternative to religions that believe in a supernatural God and life in a hereafter. Humanists believe that this is the only life of which we have certain knowledge and that we owe it to ourselves and others to make it the best life possible for ourselves and all with whom we share this fragile planet A belief that when people are free to think for themselves, using reason and knowledge as their tools, they are best able to solve this world's problems. An appreciation of the art, literature, music, and crafts that are our heritage from the past, and of the creativity that, if nourished, can continuously enrich our lives. Humanism is, in sum, a philosophy of those in love with life. Humanists take responsibility for their own lives and relish the adventure of being part of new discoveries, seeking new knowledge, exploring new options, instead of finding solace in prefabricated answers to the great questions of life. Humanists enjoy the open-endedness of a quest and the freedom of discovery that this entails. Sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Unless you have Scripture as your lens... And then you listen to this definition and you're filled with remorse, grief over the blindness of people, over their lostness. Scripture here in Genesis 11 is giving us the antidote for humanism. It's showing us, it's pulling back the curtain and showing us who man really is and what happens to their plans. Scripture is giving us here a paradigm or a pattern by which we are to understand the nations, the peoples of the earth. Throughout the storyline of Scripture, the character and nature of the great cities and kingdoms are being told you here at Babel. Babel is the pattern it's the pattern for sodom and gomorrah it's the pattern for egypt it's the pattern for babylon and on and on not only that we should see the trajectory here for our own day and age for our own culture and society the culture and society of every generation every culture and every generation has their nimrods and their babbles we don't have to try hard to see this do we Aren't our cities, those great displays of man's culture and ingenuity and achievement, what we can build together, aren't the cities where we place the stamp of our greatness? Look at the cities. Look at what man can accomplish together. Wretched Awful. To be sure, man's sin extends to the rural villages as well. But you get the point, right? You want to see what man can achieve. Look to our cities. That's who we are. Well, let's see next what God thinks of this great city with its tower. We see that man makes big plans, but secondly, we see that God assesses He inspects the plans of man. Look at it there in the text. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people. They have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. I talked about that chiasm a minute ago. That chiasm draws us, that literary feature draws us to this point of the narrative. This is the key point. This first line is the center point of the entire event. Look at it again. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. This is really important. This is, this is a, a very sarcastic line. In the first line, we get the assessment of man's great plans. Man's plans are to build a great city with a tower to the heavens. And the Lord has to stoop down to see it. It's like when my son comes to me. Dad, come and look at what I did. Come and look at what I did in the the room. Hopefully it's a good thing, right? Right? Come look what I built. And he's taking his blocks and he's built a tower and he wants me to say, wow, son. And by the way, dad, if you don't say wow, son, you're an awful father, right? (laughs) That's great. But in the back of your mind, you're going, eh. (laughs) You know, this little bump comes toppling down. I have to get down, right? I have to get down. If I'm going to play with him, I have to get down. Lower myself. In this city that my son has built, this tower that he's built, you get the picture. Man and his great plans, they they're gonna build a tower to the heavens, and the Lord, the Lord has to stoop down even to get a glimpse of it. That's how small man's plans really are. Man's efforts at greatness are pathetic in the sight of God. They're puny. Their motivations are perverse. And their achievements are pathetic. Quite an encouraging passage, isn't it? Wouldn't it be much easier for us, after we read through Genesis 1-11, haven't you been convinced that it would be much easier for us to just accept the role that God has given us and the blessings, the abundant blessings He wants to pour out on our lives? Wouldn't it be much easier just to accept our role and the blessings He wants to pour out on our lives? Wouldn't it be much easier to just trust in the goodness and grace of God? To turn from our own sinful intentions and plans to turn from our intentions to rob God of His glory and His place. Wouldn't it be much easier just to submit to His design, to His glory? Let me make this clear at this, at this point. I think this is important. It's not the achievement of man that's the problem. It's not the achievement. The sin of man is not in the bricks and the mortar. These materials, these technologies of man, these aren't the problem. Instead, the technologies of man are are the means. These are the means that demonstrate the sinfulness of man. In other words, the sin is not in the stuff. Some of you bemoan the materialism and the consumerism of our age with Christmas. Look at all this materialism. Hey Hey listen, listen, the stuff is not the problem. The stuff is not the issue. It, it's the heart. It's how we use the stuff. It's what we think we can do with the stuff. It's what we try to get. It's the security that we try to build in the stuff. That's the problem. It's not the stuff. No, God has given everything. He's created everything. To be a blessing. It's us. It's man who perverts it. And here's really the heart of it. When man seeks to attempt great things for the sake of his own name, that is laughable. You may say, well, I'm not like those people who want to do great things. I don't want to do great things. I'm not trying to be great. That may be some people's problem. That's not my problem. Okay, well, let me ask it this way then. Just to ask you a couple questions. You say, well, I, I don't want to be great. I'm not trying to make a name for myself. Okay, let me just ask you this question. What are you building and why? What are you trying to do? What, do you, what are you trying to aim at in your life? And why? What are you trying to accomplish? What is your motive? Let me ask another question. Do you you think, do you think that you can accomplish anything that will impress God? Step back and think about that for a moment. Do you think that you can accomplish anything? I mean, we've got some talented people in here. We've got some talented people for sure, Right? Do you think you can do something with all that God's given you? Do you think you can do something that will truly impress God? Listen, your best, your best, God will have to stoop down to even see it. It's not impressive. Trusting in your own might. Or is it possible that it's not really God's assessment that you're going after? This is really at the heart of it. It's not really God's assessment that you care about. What you want is the assessment and the attention of others. See, we get it. My best will not impress God. Oh, but my best might impress someone else. Make a name for myself. Maybe it's just in your family where you want to make a name for yourself. I want to be the best mom. I want to be the best dad. Maybe it's in this church you want to make a name for yourself. It's kind of easy, smaller church. I could be a big name around here, a big fish in a small pond. Whatever your context, I think all of us have this heart issue. You know how, you want, to, you want some assessment questions to see where you're at with this? What are you insecure about? Where is your insecurity? What are you quickly angered by? We've talked about this before. When people start poking a little bit at your motives, at your intentions, and you, you get a little bit angry, that's where you're seeing. this is where you're trying to make a name for yourself. Where are you, where are you Unbalanced in your passion, in your concern, in your attention. This is where we are trying to place our name. So the first assessment here is that man's greatness is greatly overstated. The Lord says they are one people and have one language, and this is only the beginning. Nothing will be impossible for them. In other words, he says this unity of the wicked this is going nowhere good. And there will be nothing to stop them in their wicked plans. You'll hear a lot about unity and the need for unity in our world. But the unity of wicked men will only end in judgment. You can't help but hear Psalm 2. As I was reading through this, I just this is Psalm 2. You remember Psalm 2? Listen to the very beginning of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together. And what do they say? They say, against the Lord and against his anointed, let us let us burst their bonds. Let us throw off their rule. Hear the Lord's answer in Psalm 33, another Psalm that just kept ringing in my ears this week psalm 33 the lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing he frustrates the plans of the peoples the counsel of the lord stands forever the plans of his heart to all generations blessed is the nation the people blessed is the people whose god is the lord the people whom he has chosen as his heritage Man's greatness is greatly overstated, and man will only unite in wickedness against God, and their unity in wickedness will end in judgment. But God has a people. Do you see that mercy in judgment there? There is salvation for his people, even in the midst of judgment. He is saving a people for himself. Now we, now we see here the last part. We see that man has great plans. Man makes great plans. The Lord assesses those plans and find, finds them wanting. Finds them very small. And that leads us to our third point. Man's plans then end in confusion. Man's plans end in confusion. God's plans will prevail, but man's plans will be brought to nothing. You see that there come, let us go down, and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Just as man had his plans, just as man had his counsels, God takes counsel with himself. Come, let us, he says, go down and confuse their language. The Lord intervenes once again as man heads down his destructive path. The Lord confuses their language so that they can no longer understand one another the various tongues that he gives mankind, this is a sign of his judgment. But as we've seen, as I just said, God's judgment is always folded in with his mercy, always. His judgment is always folded into his mercy. He is saving man, he is preserving man, he is restraining man from their evil intents. He's keeping them from all that they would plan to do. He's sparing man from his wickedness. And he's also ensuring that his plan To fill the earth with his glory will be accomplished. It will not be deterred. We see that this intervention has three results. God's intervention, his merciful intervention and judgment has three results. First, it results in man's dispersing over the face of the earth. They divide up and move to fill the earth as God had originally commanded them. This isn't a willing dispersal, right? They're not doing this obediently. They're doing this. They're forced to this. The direct result of God's actions. Secondly, this dispersal results in the leaving off of building the city. The city is left in ruins. I couldn't help, and many of you know this poem. I couldn't help think of the poem Ozymandias. Percy Bysshe Shelley wrote Ozymandias. He says, "I met a traveler from an antique land who said." My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Percy Bysshe Shelley is communicating the transient nature of power. Here there was a great statue erected in the desert of a great king with a fierce countenance and there's nothing left of him. Nothing remains or of his kingdom. This is the way that all kingdoms go. Sadly, not to give you a poetry lesson here, but Percy Shelley was an atheistic humanist. Percy Shelley wrote that poem to, to talk about all the mighty people whose power is going to end he believed, and actually, the poem is about the fact that the art remains. Kingdoms fall, but art remains. Let's put our trust in art. Do this a homework assignment. Go read about Percy Bysshe Shelley's life and, and see how atheistic humanism treats you. A sad commentary on exactly what we're talking about. God thwarts the plans of man. He disperses them over the face of the earth. They leave off building the city. Their great city is left in ruins, as every great city will one day be. And third, the place gets a new name. That's what they wanted, isn't it? They wanted to make a name for themselves? Well, the place does get a name, and the name means confusion. Babel. Now later, this place... And this plain will receive another name in the Assyrian tongue, Babylon. And Babylon is purported to mean the gate of the gods. We will, we will enter the place of the gods by going to Babylon. But the readers of scripture know what its real name is. Confusion. The kingdoms of men will seek to make a name for man's greatness and replace God with their great schemes. Man unites to oppose God for their own glory. But the Lord is not moved by all that man can do. The Lord is not moved by the greatness of man. You build a city? Good for you. He created the universe by the word out of nothing. You made a tower. He formed the mountains. You went to the moon. He hung the moon and has kept it in its place every second of its existence. You created artificial intelligence. If I hear one more word about artificial intelligence, sorry Yannick, I know you've been working on artificial intelligence a lot. (laughs) If I hear one more, artificial's in the name. I mean, come on. It's artificial. Artificial intelligence. Good for you. You want to make a name for yourself? His name is written on everything that is made. Including you. And you can't erase it, no matter how hard you scrub. Every time we look in the mirror, we remember that there is a God and we are not him. He made us as his image from the dirt. We have a role, we have a place, and it is to bring him glory. And every time we look in the mirror, we are reminded of that. In his endless justice and mercy, God thwarts the plans and schemes of men. The kingdoms rise up against him and every one of them ends in confusion and ruin. Every single one. Again, every generation has its Nimrod. Napoleon comes and he is gone. Hitler comes and he is gone. Go through history. I would use the name of those seeking our presidency right now, but I don't want to offend anybody. Guys, they're going to be gone too. They're nobodies. The only way you could think that they are somebody is by forgetting who God is and the nature of his kingdom. Get our focus where it ought to be. And this theme, that his plan for the nations continues on, his kingdom schemes proceed as planned. They will never be thwarted. This truth is a primary theme of the entirety of the biblical storyline. God's kingdom marches on. And it's an anchoring truth for God's people of every generation. I mean, it it has to just be asked very simply... Whose name are you living for? Whose kingdom are you living for? This theme runs through history. God's king and his kingdom will prevail. That's exactly what the faithful Israelites believed in the days of Rome. They knew, they knew that Rome would not win, they knew that Rome could not win the emperors of Rome, the might of Rome would be shown as the paper doll that it really was. It would not succeed. It was just a matter of time. But then, God does something unanticipated. God does indeed bring his king. God brings his king, but he does so in an unexpected way. And by doing so, God displays what true greatness looks like. You want to know what greatness looks like? He shows you. All the generations of men and all the kingdoms of the earth beating their chests, saying, Look at us. Look at our name. We will build a tower to the heavens. We are God's. But God does something unanticipated. Whereas man seeks to ascend to the heavens in their own strength, God Himself descends to earth. The eternal Son of the Father becomes the incarnate Son. And the Father says, Look at Him. You want to see greatness. Look at my son. You want to know whose name means something? You want to know who impresses me? Look at my son. He comes as a baby, an infant, born to nothings, the dredges of the earth. He grows into a man, a man of no notable reputation, a nobody. And then he begins preaching of the Father's kingdom that's coming. He warns people to repent. And this preaching is accompanied with signs and wonders, miracles that he does that no one can explain. hear the words of Nicodemus right he says no one could do what you do except he be from God we know you're from God no one could do what you do unless he is from God and yet in spite of the preaching and in spite of the miracles no one was impressed no one took notice in fact many were disappointed he's not what they expected at all Many, many of the sons of Abraham, I'm telling you, if you get a load of the biblical storyline, it just blows you away. The sons of Abraham, the sons of promise, they see him and they are angry at him. They reject him. But a few, a few, a very tiny number, a very small number, you could say it was like even like a mustard seed, right? A very small number they believe him and they believe his words but then this man who preaches the kingdom of the father he is betrayed and crucified heaven's king God's king is crucified story over Right? Story done. God's kingdom doesn't win after all. Oh no. No, God then does something unexpected once again. He raises his king from the dead. And by his resurrection, God pronounces him to be the Lord and the Christ. The Lord and the anointed one of God by his resurrection. All authority is given to him in heaven and on earth. You know what that means? He's the king of everything. All of it is his He stands on a mountain with his disciples and he says, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Because of this, he says, go, go and take the news of my kingdom to the ends of the earth. Go to every people group. Tell them all that the king has arrived and he's building a kingdom. Go, baptize them and teach them to obey my words. Then he ascends to the father. Again, the only one who can ascend, we read this a minute ago, the only one who can ascend to the heavens is the one who first descended. He ascends to his Father. But before he goes, he gives the assurance that his disciples, his followers, will be equipped with power from on high. They will be given power by his Spirit. He will be with them in his Spirit as they proclaim the news of his kingdom to the ends of the earth. And then do you remember what happens next? The disciples wait. And then suddenly, these few disciples, suddenly the breath of the Spirit of God comes upon them. And they begin speaking in foreign tongues. At Jerusalem, foreign languages. There in Jerusalem are a multitude of people from nations, from all the known nations and people groups, right? There in Jerusalem is the picture. And all of these foreign peoples in their diverse tongues, they all hear the proclamation of God's kingdom in their own language. They hear it as one. They hear it as one. They are reunited as one. The language barriers are done away. And they hear the preaching of the kingdom in their language. Everyone can understand no matter what nation they're from, no matter what kingdom they're from, In Genesis 11, the Lord disperses the people across the face of the earth by confusing their language. In Acts 2, God signals that he is bringing the peoples of the earth to unity in the name of his son. In Genesis 11, the people want to make a name for themselves. In the book of Acts, God is establishing a people in the name of his son. And that's why we're here this morning, right? Right? for the name of his son. And everything we have and everything we've been given and we've been given much, everything we have and everything we've been given belongs to him, everything. Everything he's given you is not to be used for your own name, how, how gross would that be? No, it's for him and his name close with Zephaniah 3. Zephaniah 3. This passage was not ringing in my ears all week long, but I came across it as I was studying, and I was blown away. Just, oh my goodness, the Bible's amazing. Zephaniah 3. Listen to the promise. Listen to the prophecy here in Zephaniah 3. Here's what the word of the Lord says. He says, for at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, Babel, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly they shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this reminder of what you are doing, who you are, your greatness, which is inexhaustible, your power, which is unrivaled, and your plans to make, a people in the name of your Son that will cover the globe for your glory. Lord, again, remind us of how we belong and fit with that plan. Oh, convict us of how we seek to, in our little spheres, in our little places, we seek to make much of ourselves. Even with the good things and the blessings that you give us, we twist them and pervert them around our own selves, our own name. Convict us. and then reassure us of your forgiveness and your grace that you have accomplished and won in the sacrifice of your Son. We are accepted before you, not in spite of our sin, but our sin has been dealt with in the cross. We come to you in his name, in his name alone, I pray for those here today who, their entire life, maybe two decades, three decades, four, five decades, they have lived for this life alone and has brought nothing but emptiness and despair. I pray today that you would uncover their eyes, that you would bind the power of the evil one, and that you would uncover their darkness, that they would see your kingdom in the name of your Son and the hope that he gives for eternal life, that they would come to a place of repentance and faith by your gift, by your grace. We pray all this for your sake and in your name. Amen.